morning, everyone. I didn't realise there was so much power in adjusting a microphone. Everyone just goes silent. I'm going to do that more often. It works. There you go, Paul. And you don't know how to gather people together? Play with the microphone. Okay, we're going to be continuing uh, today as we've been going through... When I say we've been going through the book of Acts, we started it last week. Let's not exaggerate. We are continuing what we began last week, looking through uh, the book of Acts. Uh, So let's open up uh, in prayer as we uh, look to God for his help in our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every page of your word has been breathed out by you, that is profitable and useful in order that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, we encourage us, we have been beginning to look at uh, the beginnings of your church and through the book of Acts. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would stir in each one of us uh, to be encouraged to see how you use ordinary men and women to achieve extraordinary things. Lord, we don't want to just learn about you, we want to learn to become like you. We want to be changed and challenged by you. So, Lord, as you challenge us, encourage us during our time together, uh, may it lead to true gospel transformation. Uh, Help me and help all of us by your spirit uh, that your word might achieve its intended purposes in us this morning. We ask in his name. Amen. Have you ever been in that stage when you're waiting for some really, really, really big news? could be an exam result, could be a medical result, it could be waiting to find out whether you got a particular job. Or if you're really, really fickle, it might be finding out the result of a sporting event to see how your team ends up on the ladder, and in my case, it's probably down towards the bottom. But all of the people who are close to you know that when your mind is so focused on waiting on a particular set of news... Sometimes it's not really worth having a conversation with you because you are so focused on this one thing that everything else just kind of blurs out into the background. And it's not really a a way to live, is it? To just live constantly seeking only the big things in life. Going from one big moment to the other. Because when we do, not only will we miss out on a whole lot of stuff, which often will be really important stuff, But our focus is just so, so narrow. Now last week as we began to look through the book of Acts, uh, there was a lot to be anticipated, wasn't there? Jesus was teaching his people about the nature of his kingdom. He was teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. So here they are looking for a momentous thing then God is going to send his spirit. He said, in a few days from now, this is going to happen. It would be very easy to think, okay, the 10 days between him saying this and his ascension and the coming of the spirit is twiddling your thumbs and waiting for the big stuff. But it would be foolish to think that these verses that we look at this morning are just stocking fillers or padding just to make Acts a little bit longer. Last week we began our series in Acts that often gets called the Acts of the Apostles. We said it's probably better described as being the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles by the Holy Spirit. Because Luke, who wrote this book, 
introduced it by saying in the first book, referring to the Gospel of Luke that he wrote, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he essentially introduces this book that we now call Acts of saying, this is what Jesus continued to do and to teach. And if there was anything by way of a central theme that guides the book of Acts, as we already saw it last week in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And afterwards, Jesus ascends to the Father. Now, Jesus' followers, they're awaiting what God has promised. They're awaiting what Jesus has promised when they would receive the Spirit, when they would receive power, when they'd be enabled to carry out the mission that he has set before them. Last week, we were encouraged to remember that that same Spirit they receive, that same Spirit that Jesus says, when you receive that, you will receive power to be my witnesses is the exact same spirit that every single one of us receive when we come to faith in Christ. That's how Paul speaks about Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. When we come to faith in Christ, we receive the promised Holy Spirit. So while we don't get to the Spirit's arrival until next week when we look at Acts chapter 2, the famous Pentecost account, we do get further insight as to what Jesus' followers doing in this 10 days between his ascension and the arrival of the Spirit. Last week we looked at least at verses 12 to 14. We saw one of the things that characterised them is that they were united and devoted in prayer. And during prayer, which is by nature a conversation, we shouldn't be too surprised that God places some things on their heart. So here's where we're headed this morning. The need to have 12 apostles in verses 15 to 20 the qualifications of an apostle in verses 21 to 23, and seeking the mind of Christ in 24 to 26. So firstly, the need to have 12 apostles. Now, as the the followers of Christ are all gathered together here, Luke mentions there were about 120 people who were there. Now, he doesn't actually give any reasons as to why he's given that number. It could just be an incidental little thing. He just happens to drop in there. But it raises some questions in my mind. The biggest question it raises in my mind is, is this all there was in terms of actual, genuine followers of Jesus Christ at this point in time? And the reason why I consider that to be a a difficult and interesting question is that Jesus in his ministry had massive crowds around him. Yes, there were times when he laid out the cost and so many departed from him. If there was only 120, and the Bible doesn't, isn't precisely saying that, then what of the 500 people, at least, that saw Jesus raised from the dead? Is it possible some of them didn't even believe? Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say this was 120 and this is all that was that we were believers at this time. But it does speak about this group of people as being the brothers, potentially defining, saying possibly this was the collection of the fullness of those followers. But it may not necessarily be that case. But why mention 120 at all? Well, last week we saw that one of Jesus' early teachings between his resurrection and his ascension, he was teaching his followers about the kingdom of God and about the coming of his spirit. 
Now, both in Old Testament prophecy, but particularly in some of the teaching of the rabbis in the, in the first century, had connected this idea of a restoration of a political kingdom to Israel and associated that with the Spirit. And we saw how the apostles asked a question, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And throughout Jesus' ministry, he's regularly saying the kingdom of God is like this because the kingdom which he has come to establish is very different than what they had in their minds. In his answer that we looked at last week, he spoke about it's not a national, it's not one with boundaries. It is a kingdom for all nations. It's not a worldly kingdom. The king is the one who's seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, who is giving power to his people to be his witnesses. It's a very new, a very different type of kingdom than ever had before. So why is this interesting in this whole 120 thing? In Jewish law at that time, to establish a new community required, guess how many people? 120 people. Again, the scripture doesn't say this is the reason, but as we look through this passage, we'll see that in terms of its context and the other things that are being said, this could be what's going on here. Now, while they're seeking the Lord in prayer, the same Peter who once rebuked Jesus for his interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures... Remember when Jesus says, the Old Testament says that the Son of Man must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. He seems to have learnt something from Jesus. Like in his resurrection appearances, he explains that all of the scriptures pointed to him. All of the works of Moses, the, the Psalms and the prophets, all of it pointed to him. And as a result, Peter interprets quite boldly some Old Testament scriptures regarding Judas and the apostles. Now, can you imagine, if you're one of the twelve, and someone that you have worked closely with for three years has gone and betrayed your, your master, the one who you're following, that's going to unsettle you a little bit, isn't it? Some of them are probably asking, if he can do something like that, am I even safe? What means that I might not do the same thing? But rather than this being cause for concern, Peter says this was necessary. This was essential. This was something that the scriptures foretold. Which raises a question. If the scriptures foretold that Judas would betray Jesus, does that mean he's not guilty? Does that mean it's not his fault? People have all sorts of different interesting takes on it. If you've Um, read or seen the Da Vinci Code which refers to a whole lot of other early century books that were written that weren't in the Bible and for good reason they're not in the Bible. One of them that gives a very interesting approach is one called the Gospel of Judas. Now it's not in the Bible and it shouldn't be in the Bible. It was written in the third century um, so it's much later than all of the actual writings. So Judas himself clearly wasn't alive. He didn't write it. But it was written during a time when there was this idea of Gnosticism. It was kind of like a a new agey group that thought that everything physical was evil and everything spiritual was good. So their kind of interpretation of things was that Judas was the good guy. He's not the bad guy. He is the hero. Because what Judas did by betraying him is he helped Jesus get out of this wicked body that he lived in. To give you just one such quote... Um, from this book that's claiming to be Jesus speaking to Judas. Um, Jesus is attributed to saying, but you will exceed all of them 
for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. Jesus like, thank you, you are the man. You get me out of this, this body. Now, apart from the fact that everything about the Gospel of Judas writes it off as being um, a complete waste of time, it also greatly contradicts the things that we do know are the actual word of God. For example, in verse 18 in our passage speaks of Judas' actions as being wickedness, not heroism. But to come to the question again, is Judas absolved from responsibility for betraying Jesus if the scriptures had foretold that that was going to happen in advance? John Calvin, I think, answers the question quite nicely with these words. Judas may not be excused on the ground that what befell him was prophesied, since he fell away not through the compulsion of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. He's saying that he didn't do it just because the scripture said that he would. That wasn't what compelled him to do it. What compelled him to do is it seemed like something that he naturally wanted to do. Like when you're reading the gospel accounts and you see the things Jesus did, you don't think, ah, Jesus had to do that or he felt compelled to do that because it was foretold beforehand that he was going to do it. Now, what we think is this is an expression of Jesus' character. This is what he would do. And because God is God and he can see these things in the future, it makes sense that he can foretell and tell you beforehand exactly what Jesus and Judas would both do. So with regard to Judas, verse 18 describes his actions of wickedness. And Jesus' own words as he interacts with Judas is he says, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He's very clearly saying, you, are you betraying me? We are always responsible for our own sin. It's never our circumstances, it's never an external influence. We are always responsible for our sin. The way James writes in James chapter 1.14 says that we are allured and enticed by our own desires. But this has got to be hard. Judas was one of the twelve. The closest guys who've been alongside with Jesus throughout all of his public ministry. Yet he could do something so wicked. Robert Murray McChain has this to say, and it's a sobering reminder. The seeds of every known sin lie within each of our hearts. Sometimes we forget the deceptiveness of our own heart and the things that we potentially could do in in the right or wrong circumstances. Now, when you look through the, the New Testament letters where the apostles are writing to Christian churches in the early first century, you see them address some really gross and disgusting sins. And you think, they're writing to Christian churches addressing these particular things because they are a possibility. They are things which Christians may still indeed struggle against. It's a reality. Because the things that we think we're immune to, the things that we think would never happen to us, will always be the things that we do absolutely nothing to guard ourselves from or protect ourselves from. So we'd be foolish to think, nah, these sort of things, I could never do that. You'd be surprised what wicked thoughts come to our mind. We get surprised by the things that come to our mind. Even the world uses the wisdom of the Bible, quoting from Psalm, Proverbs 16 or 1 Corinthians 10, the idea that pride becomes before a fall. Take heed he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. We'd be foolish to think that we couldn't do some of the stupid things we did when we were younger or even some of the things we still have yet to do. 
Now, we all know the experience. We can be horrified at some of the things we still do as Christians. We look back and think, I can't believe I, as a follower of Christ, still did that. Or sometimes we're just horrified at the things that entered our mind that we were tempted to do, but we were wise enough not to do. Then what happens when we give into it? Or if we even just have the thought? Just like Judas, guilt really gets a strong hold on us. Now, as Judas deals with that guilt in a way which is really quite tragic, he ends up taking his own life. And the sad thing is, is that Jesus' death that he died was a death to deal with, once for all, sin, guilt, shame. The very thing that he was grieving about was the very thing that was the answer to the guilt that he had. But all of us at some point have probably struggled with guilt. We may have been in a size room with people this size. There are probably people struggling with guilt about something right now. He has dealt with. Take that guilt and take it to him. Say, I believe you have dealt with entirely with this. And give thanks for that wonderful promise of Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But as we consider Judas' death, there's another question that's going to get asked is, what happened to him? Does the Bible contradict? There's two different accounts regarding Judas' death. There's one here that we're looking at at Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, but also Matthew 27, verses 5 to 8. Is there contradictions? Do we, can we say we don't trust the Bible? Both of them speak about Judas having a tragic death. Both of them speak about that death happening in a place known as the field of blood. The differences come in Who bought this field? In Matthew it says the chief priests bought the field. In Acts it says Judas bought the field. In Matthew it says Judas hung himself. In Acts it says that he fell headlong and his bowels gushed out. Isn't that a wonderful image to hear? His bowels gushed out. You don't get to hear that too many times in the sermon. But are they so far apart that they cannot be describing the same thing? I mean, after all, when Matthew says that the chief priests paid for the field, it says that Judas, so guilty about what he'd done, threw the money back at them that he'd received for betraying Jesus, and they took the money which was Judas's and bought the field. So potentially Matthew was just giving a more detailed account of how Judas's money was used to buy that field. And potentially in Acts, when Matthew says that that Judas hung himself... Acts might give a more detailed account regarding the death. Maybe the stick broke, maybe the rope broke and he fell and these things happened or maybe over time his body bloated as it does out in the sun and then his bowels burst open. There's no reason to think that they are describing things totally in a contradictory manner. It's not an important thing for this passage but it's important for us to know that we can trust the word of God. As Peter speaks of Judah's death and the need to replace him, He speaks about it being a necessity. And the reason why he sees it as a necessity is because of what the scripture says. But the scriptures he quotes, firstly, Psalm 69, verse 25, where it speaks about, let his camp be as desolate, was originally a psalm of David when David's talking about his persecutors, and actually it says there in the plural, let their camp be desolate. Then secondly, in Psalm 109, verse 8, again, a psalm of David speaking about his persecutors, saying, let another take his office. And you can't help but think, has Peter just done the very thing that we encourage people not to do with your Bible? 
Has he just found a couple of phrases that suit his agenda, taken it out of their context and says, this is what I'm going to make it mean? Is this like me lining up the 100-metre sprint at the Commonwealth Games, giving them Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, gold medal is mine, ching, ching. And does it give us the right to apply Bible phrases or verses, lift them out of their context and say, this is talking about my situation? Well, firstly, when we did an overview of the the message of the Bible that we did um, earlier this year, we saw that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said so in Luke chapter 4, but also in addressing uh, the Pharisees, saying all of these things pointed to me. And the result of that is both Jesus and New Testament authors take the Old Testament scriptures and use them in a way which is different than its original context, showing that the things they pointed to in a greater sense were in Christ. And these two psalms which are being pulled together here by Peter, firstly Psalm 69, the one who says, um, let his camp be left empty, is the second most quoted psalm with regards to Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same psalm which when Jesus is on the cross in John's Gospel says, I thirst. But one thing we can't ignore is this. Peter's interpretation of these scriptures come at a time when he's devoted to God in prayer He is an apostle who is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing scripture. We are not apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing scripture. I need that to be clear. This is not not something that we say, oh, Peter did it, I do it. And the second quote that he takes from Psalm 109, where he says, let another take his office, becomes the basis why he says, it is necessary that we replace Judas. So what are the qualifications in seeking a replacement as an apostle? Now, it's a pretty significant role. It's not something you necessarily put in a a church newsletter and it's like, we're down an apostle. Any takers? That'd be an interesting church announcement. You won't see that one later on for for the record. But Peter outlays what those qualifications would be. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must, so it's the same word as using the first verse of something that is necessary, become with us as a witness to his resurrection. So we said qualifications are someone who's there from Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist, so the very beginning of his public ministry, all the way through his life, and also must be a witness to the resurrection. Because if they are called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and all Samaria to the ends of the world, then they need to be a witness to all of who Jesus was, not just his resurrection. And so this group of 120 puts forward two men, Joseph and Matthias. Now I don't know if there's only two people who meet the requirements or they just put forward two people. But one thing is certain. He said it's necessary that we replace Judas. It's necessary to have 12 Now they've got two guys who could meet that role, so you could have 13, but it also seems to be necessary. We only need one, we need 12. To reform this idea of 120 being requirement to form a new community, if God is building his new people of God, a new community of his people, if it's to have any legitimate continuity between the Old Testament people of God of Israel 
then it makes sense that they too have 12 founding forefathers just as the nation of Israel did as well. This is the way that Paul speaks about the church in Ephesians 2.20. The church built on the foundations of the apostles, the prophets, and of course the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So even though they put forward two names, Joseph and Matthias, just like back in chapter 1, verse 2, where it says Jesus is the one who called them to be apostles, so also they call upon Jesus to bring about the replacement, to choose from these two. So we look at seeking the mind of Christ. Maybe. There we go. Now, although it's a normal practice in Christian circles that we address in prayer, God the Father, praying in the name of Jesus Christ, there actually are exceptions. Now, we all know, or we might even be one of those people who gets really, really riled up when, when somebody prays to Jesus and say, that's not what we're supposed to do. Jesus says we're supposed to pray, our Father who art in heaven. The only problem is, is there are three cases, biblically, where there are exceptions made. First of those is in John chapter 14. Jesus says, ask anything of me in my name, and I will do it. Or as Stephen's being stoned in Acts chapter 7 verse 59, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And we're about to see another one in this setting right here. Now, we know the term Lord can be used both of God the Father and the Son, so context determines how we understand who is being referred to as Lord. But in our passage, God the Father is not the focus. In fact, two verses earlier, verse 21, explicitly says, Lord Jesus. And it would make sense if he's the one who called the initial apostles, that he is the one who's being consulted and described as the one who knows the hearts of all. It's also worth considering both Joseph and Matthias have ticked all the boxes in terms of the qualifications, yet they still bring this matter before Jesus, the one who knows all. And the same should be said of any ministry, really. You're not just looking for ticking the boxes, yep, you'll do, you, you match all the things. You want to bring it before the one who knows the depth of people's hearts. You want one who knows the bigger picture. But the method they use to determine God's will, you might think, hang on. That's a bit primitive. You can hardly call that a godly way of approaching God for his direction and wisdom. Now, as they casting lots like they have, like a cup, and they have a couple of stones. So one's got Joseph, one's got Matthias on it, and he's shaking around, whichever one comes out, clearly that's God's leading. And you might have got to think, you've got to be kidding. That's That's not real spiritual, is it? I can assure you there wasn't a time in my life when I had a little cup, one, one stone had Sarah Renner on it, another one had Sharon, there's no Sharon, just a fictitious character, and shake it out and Sarah, Sarah just happened to pop out, so I thought, oh, clearly that's the one I'm supposed to marry. But before we write it off, there's two important factors we need to consider here. One is that it was a practice that was commonly used in the Old Testament time of discerning God's will. And the second thing is that primarily as Christians, we are led by the Holy Spirit who has not arrived at Pentecost at this point in time. It's worth noting also that after the Holy Spirit's arrival, we see no other case in Scripture of people using this method. But the result was Matthias was added to the twelve. Judas wasn't replaced just because he died but because he defected in, in sense, 
Like when other apostles died, like you see James died in chapter 12, they didn't think, oh, we, we must replace him. And we're seeing by the nature of the description of the office, they need to have been there with Jesus from the beginning of his baptism of John and witnessed his resurrection, nor is it meant to be an ongoing or perpetuating office. We're not supposed to be appointing apostles today. It's not like appointing an elder or a deacon or something like that, that we are uh, supposed to be perpetuating. But for a specific purpose in the forming of God's new community of people. Now, Jesus had been teaching them beforehand about his kingdom and the spirit. Now, I'd imagine them, there's a lot of anticipation. You'd be thinking, just get to the point when the spirit and the power comes, we can go out and be on his mission. Let's not waste any time. But the Christian life isn't always the pursuit of the next big thing. For these 120 people, it wasn't a case of, Let's wait till something happens. They are devoted to God in prayer. They are seeking God in prayer in the meantime. They're not just waiting for the next big thing. And as they're praying, the word of God lays something on their heart and they act upon it. Can you imagine if they were just so focused on, here comes the Spirit, we're waiting for that. They just completely miss what God had in store for them. Now, I like this picture because I'm a task-oriented kind of guy. If you haven't discovered that, um, my apologies if I'm a bit vacant sometimes, if I'm on my task. But sometimes I can be so focused on one big thing that I'm working on, there's so many other things that just blur off into the background. The danger of that is if all of your focus is going on one thing, you miss heaps of stuff, often important stuff. And it could even get to a point where our whole view of how we understand and think of God comes through the lens of what he's doing with regards to this one thing. You know, it could be a problem or a difficult circumstances we're going through. We're so focused on that that we think of God via the lens of what we think of him with regards to what he's doing on this. I wonder if sometimes we get so busy and so stressed with things in life that we just lose sight of God. Maybe completely lose sight of God or maybe just because our focus is here. Maybe we need to remember what we're exhorted to in the scriptures to be still. Know that I am God. To seek him, not to seek a solution or an outcome to a particular single thing that we're looking at. We don't want our enjoyment of God to be measured by what happens with what he does with this. Sometimes I've got to come before God and pray and say, God, I've just locked you out. I've been so focused on this, I've just stopped to take time to enjoy you. How we should regard these situations is we should regard our situation with regards to God. Look at God and interpret this through who God is rather than interpret who God is based on what he's doing on this. God, I've locked you out. Sometimes I've dictated, I've said, this is what you've got to do and I'm just going to keep banging on until you give, give me all that I want. Sorry. God, I just want to know you. Yes, we're told to bring our prayer requests to God. But we've got to let him set the agenda as what, how he answers them. 
And as we pray, being conversation is allowing time to speak. But also be a people who know God's word so we know his character so we can discern what actually is his voice. But I think we can also learn something briefly regarding God's guidance from the passage too. Now, like the apostles, they had a measure, a tangible, measurable way of saying who, what types of people would, would meet the criteria. They had some human indicators. Yet they still sought God in his wisdom, didn't they? Like we could find ourselves in a position in life where, whether it be a work situation or something else, where we've got a whole lot of options before us, we weigh them up, we think all of them might be equally God-honouring, there's nothing bad about any of them. We bring them before God in prayer who searches and knows the hearts, who not only knows all the ins and outs of the situations, he might know that we're better off in one of these three than the others, may even be the harder of the three because he has a plan to work through that to do something for our good. Or he might not say anything. And we've done the right thing, we've weighed them all up, we've brought it before God. And we shouldn't be bashing ourselves up saying, oh, maybe I'm not in God's will, I chose this one, what if it's this one or this one? Now, God still calls upon us. As we're told in First Peter, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. So when you come before God in prayer, come before God in prayer boldly towards one who cares for you, who's working for you good, who's loving towards you, and that all of his answers to our prayers are an expression of his love and care for us. Sometimes that might even mean giving him praise and thanks for an answer very different than the one we wanted because it's an expression of his care for us. You know, as parents with your kids, sometimes you don't give your kids what you want because some of the things they want are really, really stupid and you know it's really stupid or dangerous. I pray like that sometimes. Something that I think is really good and godly, I try to convince God, you should give me this, this would be fantastic. Then looking back, it's like, that was stupid. Thank you, God. Thank you for your care that you didn't give me that stupid thing I asked for. Because he alone is God. He alone is the Lord. He alone is good in everything he does. Therefore, we should be able to depend upon him. We should be able to trust. But always remember, start with him, never start with the situation. He interprets that, not the other way around. So the stage is set. We're going to continue next week as we see the arrival of the Spirit, the much anticipated in Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. We're going to look at uh, verses uh, 1 to 41 of Acts chapter 2 next week. But it's also an interesting thought I just want to finish on. I think all of this effort in, into picking out Matthias, he doesn't get another mention in the book of Acts. Matter of fact, the majority of the apostles, we don't even hear any other descriptions about the stuff that they did. And you think, why well, have 12 apostles? They were still God's people. They were still the same ones. He says, now I'm going to call you. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you power to be my missionaries. You're going to send out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all of the ends of the earth. And they probably did. They don't need to be named. Now we kind of live in a bit of a celebrity pastor culture where you know, with the guys that everyone knows, that's a big thing. But remember, this book is the continuing works of Jesus Christ. It's not about the fame of the individuals that, that God works through. And it's the same for our life and our ministry. Our, our goal shouldn't be to attract people to ourselves and the things that we're doing. 
It should be that people see the wonder and the glory of Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are alive and active in this world. That you're still at work, not just in the big things, but even in the little things. Help us to be a people who are devoted to you in prayer, that we are united and of one accord in prayer. That, Lord, as you lay things on our heart, as we examine them by the scriptures, as we seek you in prayer, that we might faithfully walk in the things that you place before us. Lord, forgive us from times when we have been so focused on a thing in life that's troubling us, or even something in life that we're hoping for or expecting. Lord, help us just to enjoy you. To know more of who you are, to draw nearer to you. And to interpret our events or our stresses, our troubles, our joys through the lens of who you are. And give thanks that you are a God who calls us to bring our request before you and who cares for us. We thank you for your care for us, even at times when we can't see how your best caring response is the best caring response, but we thank you that it is. In Jesus' name, amen.